I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and your going, both now and forevermore. So if you have your Bibles, you can open to Psalm 121. And one of the things that I love about summer camp is I feel like camp is the place in life that the world most looks the way that it was designed to look. And what I mean by that is if you open your Bibles at a different time to Deuteronomy chapter six, it gives this picture of life as it should be lived, where you talk about the Lord on when you're getting up and when you're going to bed, when you're walking down the road, when you're eating, that the the memory of what God is doing and the scriptures are on your hearts and on your lips at all times. And, you know, camp, there's also a lot of dodgeball and things, but one of the things that I love about summer camp is it becomes a, a week in our lives when we can just fully be safe with God's people and talk about the things that God is doing in our hearts and process. There's a lot, for our, praying for our kids as they go up to camp, there's a lot to process coming out of this, this last year uh, with being distanced from other people and schools and all that. And so I know as we talk about camp, you might feel compelled to give to camp. You might also feel compelled to go to camp, right? Like, when's my camp? When's my week away? As I think learning how to process what's happening in this world in a dedicated space is, is a beautiful gift. And so um, if you can't go to camp because you're not a student, that's fine. But maybe there's some other ways that you could find a way to process with the Lord the things that you've experienced in this world. This is kind of what we're talking about in this series, Psalms for a Summer Road, kind of moving from last week, Psalm 120, this despair and lament, and moving to Psalm 134 by the end of the series of worship and praise and adoration for God, there's a process of taking our pain and walking through it and coming to a place where we can be with the Lord in our heart, in our mind, with our lips, in community. And so that's the journey that I'm praying that we go on together as we walk through the story of these psalms. And I think it is very needed after the year we've all had. Now, there's been a lot of controversial things that have happened this year. Uh, the Bible is a controversial document. People have talked about the Bible. So today, I'm gonna give you the, most, the least controversial statement that Jesus ever uttered, and I'm gonna ask you if you agree with it. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. Have you seen that this year? Raise your hand if you've experienced trouble of any kind. I didn't even give you the time frame. In the last five minutes, right? In the last 14 months, in the last two weeks, in this world, you will have trouble. This is a promise of our God. You know, we, we've lived in a season that's, that's been really hard. And so most of us, we're at a point in our lives that we know trouble is a part of life. But, but I think one of the things that's, that's been hard this last year, and that it's hard for all of us whenever we enter into a season of difficulty, is not that the difficulty exists, but that a lot of times it's really hard to move past difficulty, right? You have a hard day at work, maybe, right? Your boss comes down on you, or someone makes a comment, or someone throws you under the bus, whatever happens at work, or you have to stay late, or whatever it is, and all you want to do is punch out, right, get in your car, drive away, and forget about it. 
The problem is, it's really hard to drive away and forget about it. Right? You bring it home. You're irritated with your kids. You snap at your spouse. You just can't stop thinking about it. You're distant during dinner. You just want to go to bed, right? There's all the stuff that happens when we start becoming consumed with the trial that we are experiencing, right? You're minding your own business. It's a Saturday. You're hanging out, and boom, you get a text from someone that's a friend of yours or a relative, and whatever they say in the text, it just cuts you. Like, it's, it's mean, or it's snide, or it's passive, aggressive, or whatever your family does, right? And it's, ugh! And what you want to do is say, you know what? It's Saturday, I'm not going to worry about this. Have you ever tried to not worry about something? It's like not picturing an elephant, right? You just can't, like, it just happens when you tell yourself not to do it. And so part of what we need a little equipping in is how to process through a season or a moment or an evening when, when trial has come, to, come into our lives and, and all we want to do is rest, is relax, is forget, but our minds are spinning or, or we're stressed or we're struggling or we're hustling or whatever you do in a moment of despair. You know, last week we talked about lament and how we have these seasons of despair and how it's okay to feel sad. It's okay to pour out your heart to the Lord. And we know there's a time for mourning and grieving and there's a time to get back on our feet and get back into life again. And sometimes we wonder, how do I go from here to here? How do I stop feeling sad and start living life again? I just want to wake up tomorrow and be normal again. I, I believe that Psalm 121 addresses the space right in the middle of those two realities. The space where you're still sad, where life's still hard, where trials are still coming your way, where you're still tempted to despair, and it's not time yet to just move on but you need something to do more than just feeling sad and lonely and isolated and burdened and distressed and scared and all the other things that you feel. And so we're gonna look at Psalm 121 today and wrestle with what this psalmist advocates is the way to start moving from here towards there. And so if you wanna take notes, I'm gonna give you a few things to write down, just two basic principles and two questions to ask yourself. Because since we all deal with this stuff differently, I think that we're gonna to have to do some wrestling on our own to figure out how some of this stuff applies to our lives, okay? So point number one, this is basic stuff, but you got, you, we gotta start here. And if this is new to you, this is all you need today, right? Point number one, Christians are not immune to trials. Did you know that? Christians are not immune to trials. But I say that because we need to understand that to read the text. I also say that because there's a chance that you've come here to church because you're sick of all the pain and suffering in the world and you're looking for something where you can escape that. Christianity, unfortunately, is not the place where you can escape difficult things in life. I think the founder of Christianity, Jesus Christ, was the one who promised, in this world you will have troubles. The Apostle Peter said, do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, when you experience that fiery trial as if something strange was happening to you. It don't, don't let it be a surprise to you. Christianity is not an escape from trials. And I'll tell you this, if you're gonna leave right now and go find a different religion, None of the religions offer an escape from trials. Nothing in life helps you escape trouble, right? We are all going to experience difficult seasons in life. And so if you've come in with, okay, how do I get out of trials? I can't help you there, 
But what Psalm 121 can help you with is a question that's a little more helpful. So you can write down this question too. It's this, where do you look when you find yourself in a difficult season? Where do you look? You can underline the word look if you wrote it down because I use that word on purpose because in Psalm 121, this idea of sight and looking and seeing is the most common phrase in the entire Psalm. It starts with a man lifting up his eyes He starts talking about the Lord and describes the Lord as the one who watches over Israel with his own eyes. He says that this Lord will neither slumber nor sleep. He says in verse five, the Lord watches over you. It says in verse seven, he will watch over your life. In verse eight, he will watch over your coming and going both now and forevermore. We have a psalmist who says, I'm trying to learn how to look towards the Lord who is the one who is looking towards me. And so that's why the question emerges, where do you look when you find yourself in a time of trial? And we're gonna focus in real quick on verse one here. He says, I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? The scholars are kind of confused to why he says I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Like, what's in the mountains? Is it a metaphor, right? I'm downcast, I'm looking at the ground, and now I need to look up at a a higher place and a higher power. Is it a metaphor of just lifting up your head when your soul is downcast? Lift up your chin, it's gonna be okay. Why is he looking up to the mountains? In the Old Testament, God sometimes dwells on a mountain, like Mount Sinai in the presence of the Lord. And part of it is this journey from away from Jerusalem to Jerusalem, which is an ascent to Jerusalem, the holy city that's always pictured as up on a mountain. Maybe that's what he's talking about. Maybe he's talking about the journey through the wilderness, where as someone might look on the mountains, they say all these sites of religious worship, because in the psalmist day, religious worship often happened on mountaintops. Or you read about in Kings or in Samuel, these high places where folks will erect altars to false gods and idols and pagan deities up on these high places, these Asherah poles, these altars to Baal. We think of Elijah on Mount Carmel. Mountains in the Old Testament a lot of time refer to places of worship, whether it's worship of the real God or pagan worship. And so you kind of get the picture in this psalm that the psalmist is reflecting in a deep, despairing season of his life, saying, man, I'm looking up into the heavens. I'm looking at the mountains. I'm considering worship and gods and, and who really has power on this earth. And I'm asking myself, where does my help come from? Now, if you want a question to wrestle with, here's the question. Where does your help come from? If you're looking up to the mountains for a higher power, what is your higher power. A friend who was in the Alcoholics Anonymous program and and a bunch of different varieties thereof, and and if you have a recovery background, chances are the things I'm saying right now, you're like crafting me an email like, Danny, did you know this is exactly what we learned in AA, right? Because the step one of the 12-step process is that you are powerless to change the circumstances of your life. And step two of the 12-step process is you need to entrust your life to a higher power because you can't do it on your own. And the recovery program started as a Christian program to help introduce men and women to Jesus and help them see that only this higher power named Jesus Christ could help them from their addiction. And yet over time, people who were not believers in Jesus started coming into recovery, including my friend. And and so they get to the higher power moment in the session and, 
And they're realizing, well, some people don't trust in Jesus. What do you do with that, right? And so my buddy was telling me, who wasn't a believer at the time, he said, you know, it's funny, people in my group are, are just choosing all these higher powers, right? Like one woman says, the group is my higher power. Another woman like pulls a rock out of her pocket and says, this rock is my higher power. And he's like, Danny, I'm not a Christian like you, but I'm thinking, if I have a higher power, I want my higher power to have power, right? It's like, so I chose Jesus, even though I'm not a Christian, right? Because I'm like, well, this is good. This is working, right? Because he knew, even as not a believer in God, that there are times in life where things are hard and we want to look to something higher. And even though that's something we all need, we know it's not gonna work unless our higher power is in fact higher and does in fact have power. So the psalmist says, I, I lift my eyes up to the, to the mountains. Where does my help come from? Right? Not where does the pagan's help come from? Not where does my best friend's help come from? Not where did my mom tell me my help should come from? Where does my help come from? He answers it in verse two. It says, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. This is a pretty powerful statement, even though it's also, it feels like the Sunday school answer. It's a powerful statement because the way he describes the Lord in this passage is meant to distinguish him from all of the non-believers in the world. When it says, my help comes from the Lord. And if you're looking at your Bible, it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. In the Old Testament, when we see the Lord, it's an indication that the Hebrew word was the word that we know today as Yahweh or Jehovah, the personal name of God given to Moses in the book of Exodus. Exodus, when Moses says, wait, who are you? Who should I tell people sent me? He says, tell them that Yahweh or Jehovah, Y-H-W-H sent you. That's the name of your deity. And so when the psalmist is saying, I'm looking at all the possible answers in the world to lift me up out of this time of despair, I'm choosing that I'm going to trust in my God, right? That's you saying, I'm choosing in this season to trust in Jesus. That's the name of my God. It's an affirmation that my higher power is not a rock, it's not a community, it's not a substance, it's not a person, it's not the universe, it's my God and his name is Jesus. That's my higher power. He states that right there. And then he describes his God, Yahweh, and he says, the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. And this is another common Old Testament way to throw shade on false gods. This happens, think of the book of Jonah, right? Where Jonah's in the storm on the sea and everyone's praying to their gods, the God of the mountains and the God of the waters and the God of rain and the God of the sun and the God of the fish, right? And Jonah's looking around and he's like, guys, and Jonah's fleeing from his God, but he simultaneously knows that his God that he's fleeing from is way more powerful than all these fake gods everyone else is praying to. And so he describes his God to these other sailors and says, I gotta tell you, my God created the heaven and the earth and everything in it, right? If you've got a God of the sea, a God of the wit, like those gods aren't real, and even if they were, my God created them. He is over all things, right? This is the New Testament, Paul in Athens, Acts 17. One of my favorite passages in the Bible. Paul's wandering around, and he sees all these statues erected to these different gods in the Greek pantheon. Then he goes up on Mars Hill, and he's looking at the Acropolis on this mountain in Athens, overlooking the Mediterranean Sea and the whole downtown city, and he sees all of these temples erected to all these fake gods, and Paul is deeply distressed 
distressed because the city is full of idols. And then he gets on the platform on Mars Hill and he's supposed to give a speech about why the Athenians should welcome his God, Jesus, into their pantheon. And instead he says, the Lord I worship is the God of heaven and earth and does not live in temples made by human hands. He created from all of it, from him was created all mankind. He appointed the days and the times that each of us should live. And in, and in the past, he's overlooked the ignorance of people like you. But now a, coming, a time is coming where he's going to judge the world by the man he appointed. And he proved this to all men by raising him from the dead. And he steps into Athens, a very polytheist, multicultural city and says, guys, no offense, but my God made everything, everything. Christians don't have a God of the hearth and home and a God of war and a God of the, we have one God who's the only God who made every other single thing in the entire universe. And so the psalmist is, he's like, okay, I'm in a season of deep distress. Where does my help come from? My help comes from Yahweh, the maker of heaven and earth. What makes Christians unique is not that we do not face trials. What makes Christians unique, and you can write this down, is that they turn to Jesus in the difficult seasons in life. This is what the psalmist says. He doesn't say, God, where are you? Why am I in turmoil? He's like, okay, I need help. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. And then he starts to describe just how amazing our God is. He's a God who's always watching over his people. He's a God who has us in the palm of his hand. He's a God, he says it twice, who will never slumber or sleep. I love this because this is another piece of shade at the gods of Mesopotamia. Uh, back in the psalmist day, they had a belief that when bad things happen to good people, it's because the gods must have been asleep, right? God's got to sleep too, right? And so they fall asleep and boom, you get sick. They fall asleep and boom, your wife leaves you, right? It's like, ah, oh, sorry, your God fell asleep. And there's this common amazing trope in the Old Testament where people make fun of that concept because we serve a God who is not finite and who never slumbers or sleeps. Right? This is why when Elijah is battling the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel and they're calling down fire, they're calling down fire and nothing's happening, Elijah starts to mock them and he says, maybe Baal's in the bathroom. Maybe he's sleeping. I don't know, right? And then he just like... And our God shows up because he's not on a coffee break because he's God, right? And so the Christian is unique because when we face times of trials, we turn to the one who holds the universe in his hands, who does not slumber, who does not sleep, who is watching over us. And when we cast our gaze on him, we realize he's already looking at us. I feel like we should just say like amen and go home, right? But the problem is we say amen and then we go home and then we forget to (laughs) live this way, right? It's kind of like when we worship God on Sundays when we gather, like I wish my whole week was feeling worshipful like this and then Monday comes and it doesn't. It's like, ah, I did it again. 
Now, there's something in us that's wired to, to go to every other substance other than God when we only need help from the maker of heaven and earth. And we asked that question at the beginning, where do you turn when you have a difficult day? Where do you turn when you have a season of hardship? Where do you turn when the world's coming against you? Where do you turn when your family's talking garbage about you? Where do you turn in that moment? And I know all of us feel like we should turn to Jesus. But in those moments, it's really hard to turn to Jesus because nothing in us wants to. And so what do you turn to? Come home, you're mad at your boss? Like, do you just say, I just need to pray for a while? Probably not, right? You probably think, I need to vent for a while, right? Or I need to veg for a while, right? Or I need to go and work out for a while. Or I need to go work in the yard for a while, right? Some of these things are healthy, some of these things are destructive, but all of us have something in us that is not wired to turn to the only one who can solve our problems. You end up just being stressed out, and then you wake up the next morning and think, what did I do last night, right? I just sat on the couch and I turned on this screen, right? I, I want to lift my eyes up to the monitor, right? Where does my hope come from? It comes from Netflix. <laughs> right? That, that's how we act. And sometimes it's like, oh, our day is so stressed out, we need to lift our eyes to other things, right? So we lift our eyes to Netflix, then we open our phone and we're like scrolling through Facebook while we're on Netflix. And sometimes we feel like these robots where we're just like scrolling, 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 scrolling. Like, it's like we're pulling down a slot machine in Vegas. Like we're scrolling, 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 right? Candy Crush, candy, I don't know what you do, right? Whatever it is. And it's almost like we're just trying to pass the time until we can go to bed and wake up because we hope when we wake up things will be better and sometimes they are. Some of us are like, okay, Netflix and chocolate cake, Netflix and whiskey, right? Netflix and then go and get into trouble, right? Whatever it is, we lift up our eyes literally to all these other substances. Some of us look our eyes to our phone and we pick it up, we start texting people, right? Like, can you believe what happened at work today? Right, or we call someone who we know is gonna be on our side. Like, this happened to me, like, oh my gosh, you're right, you should scream at them tomorrow. I will, yes, right? We just try to let the drama give us some hope and medicate us from the pain that we experience. And I guess that if you were coming home from a hard day and then like I called you or something, I would tell you, hey, maybe you should connect with the Lord. And you'd like roll your eyes over your heart, like, oh geez. And you'd be like, you know what, Danny's right, but I have no energy to connect with the Lord right now. Nothing in me wants to do what I know I should do in this moment when I should cast my eyes on him. And so part of this is the, the quintessential struggle, right? That, that we know where our hope comes from, right? The psalmist is not trying to discover who his God is. He knows but even the psalmist who helped write the Bible knew that he had to remind himself that there are a lot of things to look to in a difficult season that don't give life. And there's one power, there's one person, there's one entity, there's one being who does give life. And he is Jesus, the giver of life. And so part of it is learning how to turn our eyes to him instead of turning our eyes to these idols that have no power, they have no eyes, they have no mouths, they have no power of their own, and yet we feel like they make us feel better for a minute. As I was wrestling through that this week, uh, I was thinking about times in my life when, when I don't turn to the Lord, and times in my life when I do turn to the Lord, and I realized, and this is, I think this is probably true of a lot of us, that 
most of us are actually pretty good at fixing our eyes on Jesus in the worst moments of our life. Now, this is where phrases like, all we can do now is pray, comes from, right? When you get a diagnosis from a doctor and you are helpless to do anything about it, right? When you lose your job and the savings runs out and you are helpless to pay your bills. When, when you get into a season where all is lost, your child is wayward, they don't even want to return your calls and there's nothing you can do. In those moments, we do turn to the Lord, right? In those moments, that's all we can do. And sometimes we turn to other bad stuff too, right? But that is the time in life that we are best at doing the healthy thing is when we are at rock bottom and no other substance or person or relationship or solve or plan will get us to the place that we want to get. We, we fix our eyes on the Lord in those moments. And chances are, if you've been a believer for a while, you can look back at one or two moments in your life where God showed up after you just laid it all before him. And maybe the moment you became a Christian or the moment when all was lost with your health or with your, whatever it was, right? You just collapsed into Jesus' arms and said, I I can't do anything. (laughs) If anything's gonna happen, You've got to do it. I I trust this situation to you. And chances are, as you look back at that moment and as you look back at that season, you probably look back at it as one of the most powerful seasons of your life because God did show up and he was an ever-present help in time of need. And maybe he didn't solve it the way you thought he was gonna solve it, but he got you through it. He gave you a peace that surpasses understanding. He gave you answers you did not know were out there. He gave you a a change of plans that you didn't know that was possible. You saw a change of heart or a change of diagnosis or something, fill in the blank. God showed up in a powerful way and you walked away from that moment the same way you walk away from Sunday worship, thinking, I wish I could trust God in every aspect of my life the way that I just trusted God in the hardest season of my life because how beautiful it would be if I could enter into a relationship with the Lord where I was walking with the Spirit and he was as present to me moment by moment as he was in this pit of despair. I told you I was gonna leave you with a question to wrestle with, because I think this is different for all of us. And so I'm gonna put the question on the screen. You can wrestle with it how you will this week. But here's the question. Can you learn to trust the Lord in every season the way you trust him in the hardest seasons? I think of the Apostle Paul, who said, I've gone through so much And I've learned the secret of being well-fed and hungry, of being rich and poor. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The Apostle Paul, through the gauntlet of life, somehow learned how to rest in the Lord in every hard season, not just the pits of despair. This is why James says to, to consider it pure joy when you face trials because the testing of your faith develops perseverance. There's joy that can happen in the trial as you partner with the Lord in it. So some of us, maybe all of us, need to go on the quest this week to wrestle with how can I connect with the Lord after a hard day? 
How can I start building a habit of coming to him when things are difficult? I talked to somebody after the first service today who said, you know what, I've had a hard week and after listening to this message, I realized that I want to devote my afternoon to learning how to lean into the Lord after this week, to just process with him, to sit with him, to rest in him to do the dishes and listen to worship music and just think about that God is good, he's got me, and see if he can carry me through this season. Because I have to tell you, he can carry you through this season. You need to turn your eyes to him, but when you do, you will find that his eyes are already locked on you. Think about taking your kids to the pool. Right? We take our kids to the pool sometimes, and it's a scary thing when you got little kids at a pool, and they don't know that you're watching them, but you're watching them like a hawk. And so kids are out there, they're splashing around, and every once in a while, like our kids, like somebody will do something where they're like, oh no, right? Like I fall off my thing, or my floaty's not working, or I got stuck in this whatever, right? And they have this look of fear like I'm about to drown, and you can see this terror like, oh no, where are my parents? And they look, and you know where their parents are? Watching them, right? Because that's what we do. We're looking at them at all times. They're not always looking at us, but we're always looking at them. So part of the secret is to turn your eyes towards the Lord whose eyes are already looking at you. You can turn your eyes to Netflix, but Netflix is not watching over you, right? Google might be watching over you, but... (laughs) but not in the way you want, right? And so I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but, but just in honor of Psalm 121, I'm gonna give you the two things that we see in the psalm of why it's in your best interest and it makes logical sense for you to look to the Lord in moments of hardship, right? And I'm gonna do this. I think it was Miguel or AJ or somebody pointed this out to me. I thought this was fascinating in this text. We're gonna look at all the present tense verbs in Psalm 121 and then all the future tense verbs in Psalm 121. So when we look at the verbs in the present tense, we learn something about the Lord. And that is that Jesus, or the Lord in this passage, is the only one watching over you at all times. He's the only one watching over you at all times, right? The the biggest thing that the Lord is described as in Psalm 121 is the one who watches over you. He's watching over you. We've talked about that a lot. It says when we read that the Lord watches over you, it says the Lord is your shade at your right hand. It's kind of similar to that sentiment of like you look up to the Lord, you realize that he's already looking over you. The psalmist is saying, as you're walking through the deserts of life, there are going to be moments that you feel unseasonably cool (laughs) in a hot, arid desert place, like there's shade over you. He says, it's because the Lord is right there next to you, casting his shadow upon you. He's at your right hand, right? Sometimes in the Old Testament, this is a military sentiment of like, he's got your back with his shield. Sometimes it's more like the George Washington, Alexander Hamilton concept of like, he's your right hand man, right? He's the one who's right next to you, who's guarding you, who's walking with you. He's always abiding in you. This is the New Testament concept of the spirit of God being with us and in us and indwelling us. God is the shade at our right hand. He is the only one who's always watching over you. Your mind might be on your liquor cabinet all day when you're having a really hard day, but your liquor cabinet's mind is not on you. But your God who is waiting to meet with you, he's already with you, he's been watching you, he was in that meeting with your boss, and so he's the best one to process it with. 
He is the shade at your right hand. He is the only one who watches over you. And finally, when we look at the verbs in Psalm 121 that are in the future tense, we learn that Jesus is the only one who has the power to keep you safe. All these other entities we talked about have no power to keep you safe. But Jesus, it says in verse three, will not let your foot slip. He will not slumber. It says even the sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. This is this concept that if God is watching over you, there's no way you can have an accident that he is not aware of. Right, again, Christians aren't immune to accidents or trials in this world, but it's never because God wasn't there. He was always watching over you, and he is the only one who has the power to keep you safe. This idea of he's gonna guard you from the sun at day, this is another desert metaphor. You're walking through the desert. If you're gonna die in the desert, it's probably from exposure and dehydration from the heat of the sun. They say God is your shade in those moments. He can keep you alive even in the desert place. I was a little confused when it said the moon, he will protect you from the moon at night. I'm thinking, who's ever died because of the moon at night, right? But there's this Old Testament concept that the moon is kind of a source of mental anxiety and illness and struggles, right? Does anyone know the Spanish word for moon? Luna. What do you call a crazy person? A lunatic, right? Somebody has a session of insanity. We say they're moonstruck, right? This is this concept, this ancient concept. I'm not saying it's true, but this ancient concept that the moon is what makes you crazy, right? Sometimes there's a full moon, my kids go crazy. I believe it, right? But this, the Bible is not saying that the moon makes you crazy. What the Bible is saying is in the same way that metaphorically God can protect you from the arid desert of life, God can protect you from seasons of anxiety, mental struggle, right? We can just call it 2020, right? God can be your COVID-19 companion to keep you above water when you walk through a season where you feel like everything's making you insane. This is what God has the power to do. If you're feeling like, okay, I need to process this, let me tell you, you should process this. You can go to camp, right? But you can also just take a half an hour this afternoon and go on a walk and think, okay, God, I know you're there. I know you're watching. I know you're present. I know you're powerful. God, help me to develop the habits in my life where, where I lift my eyes to you. Because what we see this psalmist do is take his gaze off of his circumstances, reflect on where true help comes from, consider that it truly and only comes from the Lord, and then the moment that light bulb goes off in the psalmist's mind, he starts realizing all the things that are true about God that makes it only natural to cling to him in moments of despair. You know, I want to take some time and pray for us this morning to that effect and just to give you some permission, if you want to wrestle with this in prayer personally, we have a prayer room that's open every Sunday. We would love for you to connect with. It's right, we actually moved back into the prayer room this week because Cafe Four is open. And so you can go right into the prayer room, pray with somebody before you go. Even right now, you might be someone who's thinking, man, I've never trusted in the Lord, right? I, I've always thought that God's got my back, but it's been more of a superstition. I've never rested in him, leaned on him. This might be a day for you where you can finally just release control over your own life. And say, you know what? I wanna put my life in the hands of the only one who has power in anything in this world. 
And so as we pray, wherever you're at, I hope that our prayer can come alongside you and strengthen you to lift your eyes to the one whose eyes are already upon you. So let's pray, and then we'll worship.